all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 190 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the emergency telephone number in Brazil episode of the SLS Cast because as we are now inching ever close to the Olympics, uh, we want people to be safe in Rio de Janeiro, especially since apparently it's not safe. Uh, so you should know as a public service announcement that the emergency telephone number in Brazil is one nine zero. And with that wonderful little bit of Olympic slash emergency preparedness Brazilian news, I of course am Matt back from vacation and as always coming to, well, not always, always, but mostly always coming to us from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. What tipped you off about Brazil not being safe? Was it the number of police officers standing in the airport holding up signs proclaiming that they will not protect you if you are in need of authorized help? Um, well, there was that. There was also the fact that the uh, bacteria in the waters where the swimmers were going to be, uh, or the athletes would be doing their water sports of, of rowing and, um, I don't know, whatever swimming kind of stuff that's not in a pool or something, I don't know, uh, that they were still high enough that people were getting sick just by being exposed to the water, not drinking the water, being exposed to the water, people were still getting sick. Uh, also, uh, in very, very recent news, I don't remember, maybe it was the UK team, I think, literally would not stay in the Olympic Village because the facilities were not good enough to even like get showers and stuff, so they went to a hotel. Yeah, I heard they had biodegradable sheets or something like that on their beds. At the end of the Olympics, they can just throw the sheets away. I don't, I can't imagine that being super comfortable. I have no idea. I just, I mean, if this doesn't give away, I mean, it's it's like the Olympic Committee is as bad as FIFA, and yet somehow FIFA gets the bad rap and the Olympic Committee does not. If this, I mean, I just don't understand, so... Good luck, people. Well, welcome back. Uh, how did you enjoy the pot side of the U.S.? Uh, the pot side of the United States was fantastic. The weather was amazing. Uh, visiting with the family was amazing. I got to reconnect with some old high school friends while I was there. Which was uh. all right. <laughs> Um, it was, I mean, honestly, I really had a nice time. Had a good time in Colorado with Jen's family as well. Uh, unfortunately, due to time constraints, we had to cut out the Grand Canyon portion of our trip and hot foot it back here. And we actually, we are currently recording on the 27th of July. Generally, we record on Mondays, as y'all know, uh, but this is a Wednesday. And literally, we got home a little after 1 a.m. this morning with all of the driving, so... So how many upscale, fancy, nice country gas stations did you visit? Mm. I swear to God, I'm going to find you a goddamn coffee table book of all the <laughs> gas stations you must go before you die in the U.S. <laughs> um, let's see. Honestly, I would probably say five or six, maybe. I mean, it really wasn't that that many because 
we stopped about every 300 miles for gas. So 1,200 or so miles each leg of the trip. Um, and, and most of the stops were at well-known, well-lit areas. Yeah. So I did discover this new chain in the uh, Midwest and heading towards the Northwest in Colorado and Utah and Idaho uh, called Maverick. I don't know if you're familiar with these, um, but those these were pretty cool. These Maverick uh, gas stations were pretty cool. They had uh, reasonably priced gas, but you go in and they were like these really nice, almost like supermarket things, and they're 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 mountain themed. It was kind of funny because it's got this big mountain theme, but uh, yeah, uh, you know. So I would say you know if you need a reliable chain and you're in those states and that part of the country, Maverick is the way to go. <laughs> and if you're in Podunk, Nowheresville, uh, Idaho, then, um, I mean, how could you go wrong with a place? What would, I don't even remember the name of the place now. I'm so tired from thinking about it. But it was definitely like, it was like Cooters or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that is so, so hick. You wouldn't even find that in Tomball, Texas. I'm surprised there's not a Cooters <laughs> In Tomball, Texas. <laughs> I'm literally logging back into Facebook right now just so I can look I thought it was like Canes or something. No, no. It was, it's definitely something. It was definitely something out there, though. That's for sure. Ziggy's Express Gas and Grub. That's the name. Ziggy's Express Gas and Grub. Although, between yours and your uh, significant other slash my friend, uh, her comment about the show called hauling gas that's like amazingly clever so <laughs> i will i will oh yes i said that you should have your own gas. travel channel show where you visit all of those upscale classy that's right gas station places delightful gas stations yes yes the delightful i'll gas get stations. my hair i'll dye my hair uh blonde and or get it really ridiculously highlighted get a horrible tan and put sunglasses backwards on my neck and then do a show called Hauling Gas. You know what that asshole does every time he goes to a goddamn <laughs> restaurant? He fucking takes a stencil of his face and he spray paints it near the entrance of the restaurant. So I'll go to San Diego and I go to like a really cool fish market and I see that dude's face spray paint, like marked. He marked his 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 territory at these restaurants and... I, you never see the guy cook. He's always eating and commenting. At least you would be five steps ahead of him if you had your own gas station show. <laughs> yes, but should I? So should I? Like, you know, take my naked ass and sit in a you know a bin of paint and then like plaster my ass on the front window of the place, and that would be how people could tell <laughs> that I've been. There? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I think that's enough reminiscing. Yes, I, I do believe so. You do have news of the weird to kick I off your return. I do have some news of the weird. I, I really and truly do have some news of the weird. Now, let me ask you a question, Tim. I'm sure people have always asked, what would you do? What's the first thing you would do if you won the, if you'd won the lottery? And so I'm going to ask that question to you. Sir, what would you do? If you, what's the first thing you would do if you won the lottery? Um, I don't know. Probably buy an Oculus Shaft. Nice, 
Nice. Well, I mean, but and like seriously, put like, it in the bank. I'd probably put it in the you bank. Would, you would put it in the bank. Okay. See, now me, I would invest. I would immediately. Well, actually, that's not the first thing I would do. The first thing I would do would go and talk to a tax attorney, like a really good tax attorney, um, and a state planner, and be like, "Hey, I just won the lottery and need to set up all the shit that we need to set up to do well." But I would want to invest in everything. But what do you think? I mean, now I'm sure you've heard of lottery winners who lose their money through all sorts of nefarious schemes and they're ripped off and everything. But what do you think would be like one of the worst investments a lottery winner could invest in? The Oprah Winfrey Network. (laughs) Own? (laughs) Because it's already been owned. There you go. Well, here's something for you. Cracker Barrel. Shoney's. Cracker Barrel. Ooh, Shoney's. <clears throat> Diners, drive-ins, and dives. All right. Uh, let's see here. From HuffingtonPost.com, by way of Stephen Hoffer. $3 million lottery winner invested prize in crystal meth ring. <laughs> that would have been my fourth or fifth <laughs> <laughs> investment. <laughs> Maybe I pro- might not have put the whole three million in it, though. Uh, a former Georgia lottery winner has pleaded guilty to federal drug trafficking and firearm charges. Ronnie Music Jr., forty-five, won three million dollars playing a scratch-off lottery game in twenty fifteen. Wait, I'm sorry. What, what was his name again? Ronnie Music Jr. All right. He's the owner of Ziggy's. <laughs> 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 uh, not really. All right. So he won $3 million playing a scratch-off lottery game in 2015, but gambled his prize on the distribution of 11 pounds of methamphetamine, <laughs> according to a statement released Tuesday by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Georgia. This is uh, a an article from today, the 27th. It says, quote, Defendant Music decided to test his luck by sinking millions of dollars of lottery winnings into the purchase into the purchase and sale of crystal meth. Uh, as a result of his unsound investment strategy, Music now faces decades in a federal prison. You would think that they would have like totally taken advantage of that and said Music now faces the music, but no, they didn't do that at all. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, I guess this is somebody who really decided to take Breaking Bad seriously. I don't know. What do you, what do you think there, Tim? I don't have really anything to say. <laughs> I'm still kind of hung up on this dude's name and what he chose to do with his life. And that somebody with that dumb name was actually a winner, a lotto winner. And I haven't won a penny in the lottery. Oh, quite frankly, I'm surprised it was scratch-offs. Scratch-off lottery game. Not even a legit lottery ticket. Just buying some cigarettes. And holy crap. How the fuck did cigarettes get to $9 a pack, by the way? Well, New York. New York, it's it's been like 10 12 bucks for quite well, a few years. Well, that's an outlier. I mean, uh, New York was seven fifty, seven seventy five a pack back in 2002. So... They've always been weird with their cigarette prices. But, man, like, I was coming through New Mexico on the way home and saw $9. Anyway, 
way off base here, but still, so you're buying your smokes and filling up in gas and you go, Hey, how about that $20 scratch off? And then bam, $3 million later, you're busted for math. All right. Well, that was my news of the weird. I just thought that was kind of weird that a guy would actually invest legit money into um, that kind of a ring. And now it's actually time for real news. Are you ready, sir? Yes, I am. Here we go, folks. It's the news. And first up from me, from the Washington Post or WashingtonPost.com by way of Stephen Overly. The VCR is officially dead. Yes, it was still alive. And moving into the article, the video cassette recorder that revolutionized home entertainment by allowing television audiences to capture their favorite shows on tape and watch them at their leisure will die later this month after a decade-long battle with obsolescence. It was rough it is roughly 60 years old. Known to every child of the 1980s and 90s as the VCR, the machine became a fixture under the television sets in households across the United States and indeed the world as a means for watching movies with terrible resolution, forced viewing of grainy family milestones, and recording your grandmother's daytime melodramas. The VCR's demise may come as a shock, mostly because many thought it was already dead. But Japan-based Funai Electric Company has continued to manufacture the machines, even as several generations of superior entertainment technology have come to market. Now, executives say that lack of demand and difficulty acquiring parts has convinced them to cease production at the end of July. And, of course, this this article goes on... Um... Uh, to talk about the history of the VCR and all of the movies and all that kind of stuff. But I I like uh, how they quote a guy, uh, C. Samuel Craig, who's the director of Entertainment Media and Technology Program at New York University's Stern School of Business. He closes the article by say, by quoting, uh, by being quoted, Unlike vinyl and turntables, where audiophiles do have a nostalgia in it that's a richer, deeper sound, the VCR offers really no advantages over new technology. Aesthetically, it's nice to see an old phonograph with a wax cylinder, but there's nothing terribly aesthetic about an old VCR machine, end quote. The final line of the article, may it rest in peace. What do you think there, Tim? I know that my kids even now get a, get to have the fun of, playing the old Disney clamshell uh, VHSs and throwing them in the VCR, mainly because they're kind of hard to break. Um, so are you going to miss the VCR? Did you know that they were still producing VCRs? Actually, yeah, because we, we use VCRs. Uh, well, some departments use VCRs at my place of work, mainly because of archiving product and having to refer to older product um, and also VCRs with dual, uh, what am I, uh, region free code, uh, coding in it is kind of a hot commodity still. Uh, so studios still use VCRs, uh, for referencing older, uh, older, older product. But the last VHS tape that I, I, I can't remember the last one that I bought, but the last one that I received as a gift was 
Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. That was the last VHS tape I ever received. Until, because we got a DVD player, like, a year later, and the first DVD that I got was for my birthday, and it was 007's The World Is Not Enough. Wow. Uh, we, well, I mean, definitely, like I said, with the old, with the VHS clamshells and stuff for Disney, uh, we've definitely had VCRs for a long time. And I was an early adopter of DVD, and so I even had the old dual decks where you could have the VCR and the DVD. Oh, yeah, combined. where you can, like, record. You can copy. Yeah, the... and you could copy the VHS to the DVD. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had that, I had all that kind of stuff. And although now we're relegated to when a VCR breaks, we go down to the Goodwill and spend, like, nine bucks and get a new one. I've got three. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You're so cool, Tim. You have three VHS players? <laughs> Uh, right sir well that's my first news what do you got for us all right i'm gonna knock out two pieces of news here first off is a passing marnie nixon the real voice of my fair ladies eliza doolittle dies at 86 this is from jezebel.com written by kelly faircloth and it says this singer marnie nixon has died at the age of 86 she didn't get the marquee credit but the singing in some of the most famous musicals of the 20th century was actually her work as npr relates nixon lent her voice to deborah kerr as anna leowens in the king and i natalie wood as maria in west side story and audrey hepburn as eliza doolittle in my fair lady she presumably wouldn't have gotten that last gig if they'd cast the actress who originated the role on the London stage, Julie Andrews. Her work was pretty much an open secret, according to her New York Times obituary, but she said it was an uphill battle to get much money or credit for it, saying, quote, Deborah Kerr was nominated for an Academy Award in 1956 for her role as Anna in The King and I. The film's soundtrack album sold hundreds of thousands of copies. For singing Anna's part on that album, Miss Nixon recalled, she received a total of $420. She says, quote, You always had to sign a contract that nothing would be revealed, end quote. Miss Nixon told the ABC News program Nightline in 2007, Quote, 20th Century Fox, when I did The King and I, threatened me. End quote. She continued, quote, They said if anybody ever knows that you did any part of the dubbing for Deborah Kerr, we'll see to it that you don't work in town again. End all quotes there. R.I.P. Marnie Nixon, again, the real voice of My Fair Lady's Eliza Doolittle, passed away at 86. That was from Jezebel.com. Um, then I really wanted to mention her passing because so many, I mean, in, in musicals, there are so many famous people uh, that couldn't sing. Um, I mean, like, uh, and it's, it's, it's sad because they never got the credit. Um, it wasn't just for them, but it was also for studio musicians, for rock and roll bands, uh, like the Monkees, for example, the Monkees for many years were credited as the as the musicians that actually came up with their songs. No, there was a studio musicians called the Wrecking Crew that did all their songs, and same with numerous other bands from the forties, fifties, and sixties. Uh, and it's absolutely fan, uh, absolutely amazing. 
um, that these people have been overlooked for so long. But I'm happy that Marnie Nixon did eventually get her due when it came to all the singing voices that she supplied for all of these classic characters in movie history. Next up is a fun article. I don't know if I could be the only one out there. I have a feeling I'm not. But back when I heard that Rush Hour 3, which came out in 2007, I think, uh, that they were actually going to make a Rush Hour 3, I was super excited because I loved 1997 or 1998's Rush Hour. And then I loved Rush Hour 2 that came out in 2001. So, of course, I was so very much looking forward to Rush Hour 3. It came out and it fucking sucked. I laughed maybe once at the very beginning and that's it. Well, it turns out Jackie Chan came out with the movie in China with Johnny Knoxville, which should have been Rush Hour 3, but it was called Skip Trace and it rockets to $60 million in its opening weekend. This is from thehollywoodreporter.com and it says this, Jackie Chan's action comedy Skip Trace shot to $60 million over its four-day debut at the Chinese box office, easily besting Warner Brothers' The Legend of Tarzan. Skip, Skip Trace debuted Thursday to $15.6 million, including previews, and stayed strong throughout the weekend, averaging $15 million each day, according to data from Beijing Box Office Monitor Entertainment Group. The four-day opening haul marks the biggest bow of Jackie Chan's career, topping the $54 million Dragon Blade earned during its Thursday-to-Sunday debut last year. Skip Trace was directed by Finnish filmmaker and Hollywood action veteran Rennie Harlan, who moved to Beijing two years ago to work on, uh, in the fast-growing Chinese industry. The opening also is a career high for Harlan, topping Die, Hard's, uh, Die Hard 2's three, uh, $34 million first weekend way back in 1990. Skip Trace co-stars Johnny Knoxville as a fast-talking American gambler. Chan, playing a Hong Kong detective, is forced to team up with Knoxville's character after his niece, played by Fan Bingbing, runs into trouble with a notorious criminal mastermind. The movie was made on a production budget of $30 million. Harlan has launched his own Chinese production company with financial backing from Jiabu Culture, uh, yeah, Culture Group. He will next direct an adaptation of the popular Chinese video game Legend of the Ancient Sword for Jack Ma's flooding studio Alibaba Pictures Group. End all quotes there. There is more to the article. Do check it out. From the HollywoodReporter.com, China box office, Jackie Chan, Skip Trace, rockets to $60 million. And you guys, if you have not seen this trailer yet, go online whenever you can and check it out. It looks entertaining. Um, it, basically, Johnny Knoxville's playing Owen Wilson's role in Shanghai Noon and Shanghai Nights. And he's playing Chris Tucker's role in all the Rush Hour movies. It just looks like a fun pairing. And on top of that, Jackie Chan is doing more of his great, awesome comedy, uh, action comedy, kung fu fighting comedy. So I am not only just looking forward to the movie, but I'm also really looking forward to the blooper reel that I'm pretty sure will follow during the end credits. So, yeah, uh, do check those uh, two pieces of news out. 
Very cool, very cool. All right, well, I'm going to move on here and uh, talk about a variety a variety article. Uh, this comes to us from Ramin Satude. I mean, it's technically listed in the obituaries because it's dealing with Gary Marshall, who passed away back at the age of 81 back on the 16th of this month. Uh, so definitely a rather prolific director in certain regards. And while definitely known for some very big hits in the 90s and even a couple in the early 2000s, he was also known for trying to make movies about every known holiday on the calendar. Um, so that was unfortunate, I think. But at any rate, someone who had spent a great deal of time with him, both on and off set, Hector Elizondo actually discussed uh, uh, his recollections. The title of the article, Hector Elizondo talks about working on all 18 of Gary Marshall's movies. And here we go. The one staple of every Gary Marshall movie was a supporting role for Hector Elizondo. The two first met in 1978 and quickly became close, fr close friends and collaborators. With Marshall's passing last week at the age of 81, Elizondo spoke to Variety's Ramin Satude about some of his favorite memories from their 18-movie partnership that started with 1982's Young Doctors in Love and continued through last spring's Mother's Day. And... Here, he says, uh, and it's, this is all quotes from Hector Elizondo from here on out. He says that Gary, uh, quote, Gary Marshall didn't say funny things. He said things funny. He had a way of looking at the world, a unique Gary sound. He didn't like it when people made a big deal of little things. If he brought something to the table, he was open to it. The first thing he'd ask when a new actor came on set was, did you eat? That was a big thing for him. Get some food. Uh, you thought you were in somebody's kitchen having a cup of coffee. That sets the mood. He, um, end quote there. Moving along, he says here, quote, We worked together on 18 movies. I've done all of them. He liked the streak. There were times when I wasn't even available. There was nothing in the movie for me. And he'd say, You've got to be in it. Once I had just arrived from Europe, I get a call. Welcome back, Hector. I'm here in Long Beach. I need you for a minute. On the run, I figured out how to be a Portuguese captain of a garbage scow. That was overboard. End quote there. Uh, let's see here. He says here, moving along, he said that, uh, <clears throat> quote, movie stars loved working with him. He made them comfortable. They felt safe. The first act of love is listening. He loved actors. Of Tom Hanks and Nothing in Common, we both said, this kid is going to be something. He mentored Matt Dillon on The Flamingo Kid. Matt was young and didn't know anything about comedy. He took himself too seriously. So Gary said, let's throw him in the swimming pool. And he hit him in the face with pies. Little by little, Matt started to laugh. The rest is history, end quote there. Um... And and just a few there there are a few other things in here that he talks about. He talks about Pretty Woman. Um, he talks about Princess Diaries and things like that. I think this just really goes to tell uh, goes to show um, that Gary Marshall, despite whether or not movies like Mother's Day really should have been made, it's that part of the reason he was working up until uh, the day he died and making these movies was that clearly he had not just done things well creatively previously, which gave him some clout to do that, but because he understood how to work with great actors and actresses and they wanted to work with him too. And when you can guarantee certain levels of star power, you can get 
virtually anything made. Uh, and I think that really goes to show just exactly what kind of a, I think that really speaks to what kind of a man Gary Marshall actually was. I don't know about you, Tim. What do you think? Do you think that, uh, uh, it seems to me that this article definitely demonstrates that Hector Elizondo, at least, truly cared about the man and they had been friends clearly for years, 30, uh, 37 years, basically. So, um, what do you think, man? Well, the only thing I can really say is that I think Gary Marshall's a super nice guy. Um, I, he's, he waved to me every single day that I was at, uh, I was working at, uh, with, uh, my uncle, he was working on a TV show on Sunset Gower in Sunset Gower studios. And, Gary Marshall, right outside my uncle's office, out of his window, Gary Marshall had his trailer, and he had fake grass and, I guess, astroturf and uh, uh, an umbrella. And every day he was he would always sit out there and like eat a little sandwich or whatever. But he would always wave to everybody and say hello, good morning, good afternoon, how are you doing? And if he if he's seen you multiple times, you became like a regular, and he would talk to you. And this was back when he was doing the movie Georgia Rules, so 2005 or 2006 or so. So just ever since then, I've had nothing but respect for the guy, despite some of his movies, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he's just a, he was a swell guy, and. You know, it, he hasn't made a good movie in a while, but despite that, it's still sad to hear him go. Yeah, and I guess he won't make any good movies anymore either. So, too soon? Probably too soon, especially for a really nice guy. Anyways, all right. Well, that's all I've got there. What else you got for us, sir? All right. So, I'm just going to mention one thing and then go into another thing, which I think Matt would have a few things to say about. A lot of things in that sentence there. Uh, via CNET.com, Cinema 3D with no glasses? MIT has done it, written by Michelle Starr. When it comes to cinematic 3D experiences, glasses aren't necessarily the most accessible method. However, while glasses-free 3D does exist, like in Nintendo's 3DS, current methods are not easily scaled up to cinema screen sizes. A team of researchers at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory believes it's found a solution. They've called it Cinema 3D. One current method involves the use of what is known as Parallax Barrier, a device placed in front of a display to show each of the viewer's eyes a different set of pixels, known as a stereoscopic image. However, this requires that all viewers are at a, con uh, at a consistent distance from the screen, something that's obviously impossible in a cinema. MIT CSA, CSA I guess they call it MIT CSAILS, uh, approached uses, uh, approach uses multiple parallax barriers so each viewer is targeted by a barrier tailored to their position. This is, pre, uh, this is predicated on the idea that cinema goers are limited in movement by the edges of their seat. Therefore, each parallax barrier can be displayed to that narrow range of movement. The team's prototype isn't yet ready for market, requiring 50 sets of mirrors and lenses, but it has been demonstrated in an auditorium where all viewers saw 3D images of a consistently high resolution. End all 
quotes there. I personally think that would be great uh, because I you can't trust anybody to freaking clean the damn glasses when you go see a movie. You can't trust anybody to have the projector uh, on the correct setting. Uh, that could be um, a focus and the brightness of the of the image because whenever you're watching something in 3D, the image has to be brighter than usual and it definitely has to always be in focus. That's happened so many times and I just, I, I cannot wait for this 3D glasses, uh, glasses-less 3D cinema to come uh, to to go into effect because I think it would be not only revolutionary but super convenient for me. Uh, next up from theguardian.com, ban on smoking in movies infringes free speech, says MPAA. <laughs> I can hear Matt's teeth gritting right now. This is written by Henry Barnes, and it says this, The Motion Picture Association of America, MPAA, is attempting to defend itself against a legal complaint about smoking in films deemed suitable for children by claiming that movie ratings are opinions. The MPAA facing a suit that hopes to see smoking imagery banned from films rated G, PG, or PG-13 is arguing that the ban would be an infringement of the First Amendment right to free speech. They argue that the ratings should reflect what uh, what most U.S. parents would think suitable viewing for their cho- uh, suitable viewing for their children. Now the plaintiffs, led by Timothy Forsyth, are arguing are arguing that movie ratings are not protected by the First Amendment, according to the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Oh, wait. Uh, Led by Timothy Forsythe are arguing that movie ratings are not protected by the First Amendment, according to The Hollywood Reporter. They argue that the link between on-screen smoking and teenage uptake is scientifically provable, and their complaint is therefore about false advertising. Quote, the complaint asserts that defendants cannot affix a PG-13 or lower certification on movies with tobacco imagery because they know that it has been scientifically established that subjecting children to such imagery will result in the premature death of more than a million of them, end quote, said Forsyth in Co. in a new memo. <laughs> the plaintiffs had previously noted the strong link between tobacco use on screen and uptake by young people, saying that about 4.6 million adolescents were recruited by youth-rated movies to smoking. Among the blockbusters they used as example were Spectre, Transformers Age of Extinction, and The Woman in Black. The MPAA has argued that the link between on-screen smoking and uptake by youths is, quote, too attenuated and speculative to support damages. End all quotes there. Again, that was theguardian.com. Ban on smoking in movies infringes free speech, says MPAA. (sighs) Well, just like uh, Fry's, you know, Fry's ancestor in Futurama, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just come the fuck on like i asked you earlier if do, do they want to make a movie r-rated right if a kid doesn't use a crosswalk i mean or if it doesn't hold an adult's hand when they cross the street i mean this is just so stupid look 
I understand you don't want to necessarily just inundate kids with bad images, or you want to be able to talk about kids why why this person smokes or smoking in general or something like that. Um, okay, so just do that so that when kids see it on the screen, they just understand it's part of the thing and that's what it is. And it's a cultural yeah, thing. I mean, you know, smoking it can be a cultural yeah. thing. It could be a thing for a time period piece and uh, or anything else. It doesn't matter. Just you know, this if this all goes back to you know, if you just talk to your fucking kids, you'd you'd be surprised about how many fucking problems would virtually go away. I don't know. I just got uh, drinking straight tequila every day is bad for you. Are they going to ban uh, or are they going to make uh, movies featuring people drinking straight tequila rated R? Are they going to make movies featuring a mother kissing her daughter on the lips rated R? It just, you know, that shit just doesn't stop, man. Yeah, I hate smoking. Smoking's bad, but I, whenever I think of Transformers Age of Extinction, the last thing on my mind is the person that is smoking. I know. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, it's completely unreal. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up my news real quick, very quickly, from ScreenRant.com by way of Amy Giardinieri. Hmm, wait. Giardinieri. Okay, Jardinier, whatever. I apologize, Amy, for butchering your last name. Uh, Jeff Johns, promoted to president of DC Entertainment. Yes, after the release of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Warner Brothers made quite a few changes in their managerial department, including bringing on DC's golden boy, Jeff Johns, to assist with all DCEU films. Of course, DCEU is the... Extended Universe, that's what the EU stands for. Uh, let's see here. This reorganization led fans to believe that Johns was being brought in to save the day alongside Warner Brothers Studios' John Berg. Considered to be a smart move by the studio, most fans are now looking forward to a promising future of DC Films. The news, uh, this article is from the 26th, says the news came earlier today as a report suggested that in addition to his role as CCO, that's create, Chief Creative Officer, Johns has also been promoted to president of DC Entertainment as well, which would explain the different tone uh, that was seen in both the Wonder Woman and Justice League Comic-Con trailers. Um, and that's I'm just going to go ahead and stop there. You can read the quotes from Bleeding Cool and also from Heroic Hollywood and the responses that the article gives to those quotes, uh, if you would so choose, and I do recommend that you do choose. Uh, head over to ScreenRant.com, check that out. Um, this is good. I think that they're trying to find their own uh, Feige, and that that's great. Um, if they can, if they can do that to actually try and compete with Marvel, more power to them. I think that it's going to take a little bit more time to get over the hiccups and stuff. Although we'll get into that a little bit more with the Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition when we do that review here shortly, and. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think that if this guy has been doing as well as he has, which I, uh, it seems that he has definitely been very good for DC Comics up to this point. So I think that giving him uh, the reins may actually be the smart thing to do here. Um, you just got to be careful that, you know, you don't turn some guy who's doing a great job because of the way he's got a good vision and maybe Michael Eisner it. Um, a la Disney in the 80s when he started off strong and did a lot of good things, but then took, you know, literally tried to 
grab the Disney Corporation by the throat and bully it into the ground. So we'll keep, you know, I'll keep an eye out. We'll see how this goes. And that is my news. Tim, of course, if you have any questions, comments, concerns on this particular article. There you have it. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to bring us to the news. Uh, and Bring us to the news? Bring a, Oh, good Lord. That's going to end the news and bring us to Did It Age Well? Now, on this particular uh, Did It Age Well, we are going to be covering Star Trek First Contact. Uh, and it turns out that Tim has actually got his opinion in full effect and a special guest that Tim may or may not tell you about. He might just surprise you with. Um, but as we know from last week and a couple of weeks ago, I kind of stepped away from the Star Trek thing because I'm a little upset with the way things that have been have been progressing on uh, CBS and Paramount's end. Um, I will, however, say that I did watch this movie last year. And I mean, even from remembering it from last year, I would automatically say this movie's aged well. Uh, I, you know, I'm hoping to be able to watch it again someday soon without um feeling guilty for breaking my uh you know my uh, uh i don't think you're going to be watching anything star trek for a very long time maybe not maybe never again and i'll be sad uh so that's why i say i hope that someday i'll be able to watch it again without breaking my principles as it were so but only time will tell so without further ado take it away tim and special guest In his nightmares, he can see them. In his mind, he can hear them. Locutus. In his soul, he can feel them. I've just received a report from Deep Space Five. Long-range sensors have picked up. Yes, I know. The Vorg. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Now... In Earth's darkest hour, he must fight them again. Captain, Earth. Life signs? Population approximately 9 billion. All Borg. How? Time travel. They went back and assimilated Earth. Changed history. I must follow them back. Repair whatever damage they've done. But this time, they must travel to the past. April 4th. 2063 to save our future you're all astronauts on some kind of star trek they invade our space and we fall back they assimilate entire worlds and we fall back not again the line must be drawn here it looks like the control deck's 26 up to 11 mr data and i are returning to the ship don't let them touch you uh. must activate the auto-destruct sequence. You want to destroy the ship and run away, you coward. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Let's rock and roll! Destroy them. Watch your future's end. Our shields and our weapons are gone. Resistance is futile. Perhaps today is a good day to die. going to lose the Enterprise. Not to the board, not while I'm in command. Star Trek First Contact. All right, so on this rendition of Did It Age Well, 
we will be covering Star Trek First Contact. But actually, Matt will not be joining me in this conversation. He is currently boycotting all of Star Trek due, the whole, due to the whole Axanar thing that's happening. So I am joined today by Justin, all the way from Long Beach, California. Justin is here. How are you doing, Justin? I'm doing great. It's great to be on the show, Tim. So I wanted to speak to you about Star Trek as First Contact and beyond because I know you are a fellow Star Trek fan. I think we've talked about Star Trek before in the past, Uh, maybe for even a couple hours last night we spoke about Star Trek. So what is your experience with Star Trek? Why don't we start off with that? Well, I grew up a bit of a sci-fi nerd. I had an uncle who had two daughters, so I was the only one that he could really share his love of sci-fi with. And because of that, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to Star Trek at a very young age. So I grew up loving it. But when I was a child, I actually grew up watching The New Generation as it was on TV. So First Contact made a lot of sense to me. I saw this movie in theaters when it first came out. I was watching the show when it was happening. So for me to think that this was 20 years ago is almost crazy. Yeah, so I kind of jumped on the Star Trek bandwagon late myself. First Contact was really my first Star Trek, full-on Star Trek experience that I uh, can really remember. I mean, I was about seven or, or eight or nine whenever it came out. Yeah, I think we were both around eight years old when it came out, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, it came out 20 years ago this year, almost 20 years to the date, uh, November something or other, 96 is when it was released, and I went with my uncle to go see it, big theater, there in uh, the Woodlands, Texas, and it was either seeing that movie or Independence Day, I think was the other one that was still out, well, no, Independence Day came out in July, I'm sure there was another movie that came out around the same time, so my family split off, half of us went and saw Star Trek, and the other half went and saw whatever other big movie that came out. So it was me and my uncle who went up seeing Star Trek First Contact. We were two of maybe ten people in the whole theater, and I was kind of shitting my pants in a way beforehand because what I took from the trailer is that it was a freaky sci-fi movie with this freaky-looking Borg queen with a detachable head in upper part of her body or actually yeah her head and her spine that kind of uh, dwindles down and it somehow reattaches to her body and that just freaked me out watching that in the trailer so needless to say I was looking forward to seeing it as a kid but not looking forward to seeing it at the same time due to that I guess due to being scared of the Borg queen due to being scared to the Borg But I remember seeing it, and I remember loving it, and since then, uh, especially when the 2009 reboot came out, I've I've revisited all of the movies, next-gen movies, as well as the original cast movies, at at least once every year I watch all of them. Uh, Needless to say, I did watch all of them in preparation for uh, Star Trek Beyond, and it's been... It's very. We'll talk about this more whenever we review Beyond. But it's fascinating watching all these movies that lead up to the J.J. Abrams prequels, or not prequels, but J.J. Abrams reboots, because each 
generation, I, I guess I guess it's safe to say each generation or each rendition of Star Trek has a totally different tone and feeling to it. However, Next Generation and the original series share some of the same, uh, many of the same qualities in storytelling compared to um, the Star Trek J.J. Abrams reboot, which are more like action-based, action-oriented, and story-oriented, and appealing to the mass-oriented, opposed to being uh, movie movies about, or films or stories about core characters and their interactions with one another and an overall theme to either each character or the each main character or the story itself. Yeah, Next Generation always seemed to kind of gotten Star Trek right compared to a lot of other reboots or spin-offs. Next Generation really had a cast that you could love, that you could admire, but also felt like a legitimate space crew without any agendas. Um, Next Generation was probably my my favorite um, Star Trek franchise, you know, outside of the original series, because it brought that unique storytelling while still being flavorful, still had action, still had drama, all of those things. And that's really what comes out in First Contact to me. That it's such a great Star Trek mixture. Exactly. So for those of you who couldn't tell which movie we will be discussing uh, for Did It Age Well, it is, of course, as a reminder, Star Trek First Contact. It was released November November 22nd, 1996. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes, who plays Jean-Luc Picard's number one. Number one? <laughs> Um, this is one of a few Star Trek movies that he directed. I think he did, gen- I don't remember if he did Generations or not, but I know he did the follow-up to First Contact, which is Insurrection. Uh, on a budget of $45 million, First Contact grossed $146 bucks. It turns out this was actually the highest grossing Star Trek movie before the J.J. Abrams reboot came out in 2009. And Star Trek... First Contact is the eighth feature film in the Star Trek series, uh, the second film in the series to feature the uh, Next Generation cast, and basically the film is about the Enterprise going back, time traveling back to the 21st century uh, in attempts to prevent the Borg from basically conquering Earth and uh, changing up the Earth's timeline to basically prevent... um, I forget the guy's name, but he he was supposed to be the inventor of, of, of warp speed, I suppose, which would eventually lead to the Federation or, or what, what would become the Federation and the ideals that they live by. And that is what the Borg is trying to uh, nip in the bud by going back in time to the 21st century to uh, destroy him. I forget the character's name, but I know he is uh, performed. Seth Cochran. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a James Cromwell is the actor. Yes. Um, yeah, does that kind of a, a decent synopsis, I guess? It's such an interesting movie because it is based on time travel, but that's not the singular focus of the movie like most time traveling movies. And I thought that Star Trek handled it in a very Star Trek manner where they were able to 
really put their own flavor on a story that's been told before, but it felt really organic and it felt like a sci-fi action dramatic piece without being overly sensitive to the time issues and everything like that. Besides, the Borg are just an awesome bad guy. They're right up there with Russians or Germans in an Indiana Jones movie or a 007 movie. Are you comparing the Borgs to Nazis due to their assimilation, trying to assimilate people? Well, you know, they are striving to get that perfect race, and that does feel a lot like the Nazis. But again, this is Star Trek's take on something without throwing it in your face. They can have a very Nazi-like bad guy without blatantly saying, these are Nazis. Yeah, I kind of wonder if the Borg was a uh, kind of take on Nazism. I don't know, but I mean, even down to their demeanor, because the whole thing with the Borg is that don't they share, share the same mind or they share the same consciousness or something like that? Yeah, it's the hive or the collective where everyone shares the same kind of feeling. And that's what was so fun about this movie is we had already experienced that through the TV show. So for the people who had been watching The Next Generation, as soon as that Borg ship hits screen and you hear the Borg, it is automatically ice in your veins. You know this is bad guys. Bad things are coming, and there's a a terrifying feel for the viewer. People who didn't know and didn't watch the show regularly still got that sense very early in the movie that these are very bad, bad things, and the crew must do whatever it takes to not be assimilated. And I think that's just good movie making and good storytelling when you set up a bad guy so quickly in a movie and you understand it with so little being said. And that's also what makes this movie super unique is because, yeah, this is a Star Trek movie that is very, uh, you know, it appeals to the fan base, but it also appeals to people that are not a part of the fan base. And I think this was a, a great introduction movie for a young Tim uh, being eight years old and not really growing up with watching a lot of Star Trek before seeing this movie because this is it's just a really good sci-fi movie um, it, it, and that's what's unique about it is that it's able to con- in a way convert fans to maybe look at Star Trek in a different way maybe if you were very anti-Star Trek kind of thinking like oh Trekkies, Trekkers, uh, they're all nerds and dorks, they, it's just a, a show for nerds but I think this is kind of like the one movie Uh, especially in the next generation films that can appeal to everybody else outside of the Star Trek universe, which is great. Absolutely. You have great storytelling. You have the right mix of, uh, you know, mix of action with drama. You have some of the best acting in Patrick Stewart. I think uh, any of the Star Trek franchises to date, So I think these kind of elements make for a movie that are really rounded, where today's movies are much more action-based. They want to appeal to everyone. Hardcore Trekkies are no longer in mind because they're trying to make blockbuster sales opening weekend. 
And that brings me to another reason why I think this movie is unique. And that is because if this same movie were made today, um, especially with Beyond, which we will be covering shortly, uh, Beyond, one of the many things I, one of the few things, or yeah, one of the handful of things I didn't like about it was that it's, there's so much action and so little, and not as much storytelling. Uh, or the action is used as a plot device way too much. So if First Contact were made now in the 2000s or the, uh, you know, uh, post maybe 2006 or so, it would have probably 70% more action and special effects added to it. And honestly, I think the special effects and the action that they used in the movie, in First Contact, uh, currently is, is, is great. It's wonderful. The effects... Uh, it's a blend of it's a nice blend of CGI and practical effects that still hold up today. It was kind of fun watching it. Uh, Justin and I both, uh, separate time or separately, we watched it on Netflix, so high definition. And I got a big TV too, so it would be easy to spot any flaws or inconsistencies in the effects. And I really didn't notice any. It, I mean, it was kind of. It, I mean. In that regard, it was really fun to watch because everything was seamlessly blended together. The effects, the story elements, and the character interaction and the characterizations. It was just a, a very fun uh, experience to go back and rewatch this one. Yeah, what I really enjoyed about the effects with the practicality was it felt like watching the original Star Wars movies where you can say, yeah, that looks a little dated, but the storytelling's so great, and the action is there, and the effects that are in place are so ahead of the time and look so great, that you really don't mind. They don't take anything away from watching the movie, where a lot of action movies that are plot-driven because of the action, you watch them five or even ten years later, and they fall flat because you say, wow, that's a lot of CGI crap. Where this really holds up because of those practical effects and some of those early 90s CG and camera workings that really make it a great movie. I think one of my favorite scenes is when they're out on the ship. They physically have to walk outside the ship in spacesuits. You get that sense of being in space. But they built a great set of them having to walk out there and fight the board to take away the dish that they're trying to transmit with. But you really get this sense of they're walking on this thing and space is above them. And I thought that was such a fun scene that still progressed the movie where today a scene like that would be 100% CG and I don't think it would have the same impact as it did as First Contact scene did. You know, also another thing that I liked about this movie is that w one thing that I noticed uh, going back and watching Nemesis and Insurrection and even Generations is that, uh, especially with Data and how Data interacts with people, in every single one of these movies, Data has to have like a really goofy, silly scene just to remind everybody that Data is a robot who is not quite human, but who desires to be human or have human qualities. 
Yes. They don't they don't do that this much in in this film. The the hammy moments have been turned down low for this one. Uh Data's not like singing Broadway uh, Broadway melodies or anything like that. Melody or uh Data is used as a a plot device, but in a very good, interesting way, basically to show you how Nazi-like and how evil these uh, uh, the Borg really is, especially the Borg Queen. And one of my favorite parts of this movie, uh, because this movie has a lot of these really neat, nice little nuanced moments, but one of my favorite nuanced moments in this movie that that plays out as just great sci-fi is when Data gets captured by the Borg, and he wakes up, and he's on the operating table, and this kind of screams 90s, but his head is on top of one of those uh, circular electricity glow things that a lot of kids had in their rooms in like the 90s, where the electricity kind of shoots out. Like, if you touch it, it looks like electricity is shooting out of your hand, in a way. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I have no idea what they're called. I don't either, but... For anybody who lived through the 90s, this was immediate nostalgia factor. It, I seemed like those things were in almost every sci-fi movie at the time. But when I saw it, re-watching it, totally took me right back to the 90s. And I loved it for that. But no, that scene you're talking about is great, where they plant the skin on him and blow on the hairs... And this is the first time Data's ever felt uh, human interaction like that. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it's just a great little scene because they, um, so he has this little tiny bit of artificial skin on him. And, it, you know, instead of using it to torture him, which in a way that they do with his, he has like that chip, uh, uh, what, what do they call it, the, his characteristic chip? or ocean chip. Yeah, the emotion chip. There you go. But instead of like poking him with pins and needles and like torturing him that way, she's trying to assimilate him in a rather kinky way by yeah, like what Justin said, by kind of erotically blowing on his arm, and it, it was just such an interesting, sh- not only interesting shot, but an interesting moment altogether because it was also Data's reaction. Because Data's reaction was a very human reaction, and especially if you've seen the other movies and watch Next Generation, it kind of it, it's like a big step for his character. You know, this is the first time he's ever felt anything remotely like this, whether it be sexual in nature or or, or not. And so it was just kind of a very interesting scene to see uh, play out because it really does progress not just the movie and the and what's you know happening on with uh, uh, going on with the story but also with character uh and w- with the board queen um with um with data and it also raises the stakes for picard as well well and what i love and you mentioned this is the hammy factor being turned down but the way that we can still relate to data not being human comes in the previous firefight that he is actually captured, where Picard and a small group of Enterprise crew are trying to attack the Borg and figure out what's going on. And Data tells Picard that he's feeling a sense of nervousness. And he's trying to explain these emotions to Captain Picard. And Picard says, maybe you should turn off your Data chip. And he goes, done. 
And Picard turns to him and says, sometimes I envy you, Data. You realize that Data is really a great weapon and a tool, but that he does long for those human emotions, but is able to turn them down in critical moments like that. I thought that was a great way of showing Data is different, but in a useful way, not in the Broadway song and dance kind of way. Exactly. So uh, what are your final thoughts on Star Trek First Contact? In your opinion, did it age well? I think this movie aged extremely well. I think it holds up top two or three Star Trek movies of all time. And like you said earlier, this is that one that people who don't like the Star Trek universe should check out. This is a great introduction to what Star Trek can be. Yeah, I think this one might be my second or third favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, This one has more action than all the other ones. I mean, one I can compare it to, and this is not including the J.J. Abrams reboots, but I can easily compare this to The Undiscovered Country. What's great about Undiscovered Country is that it's story-based with action in it. And this is exactly how this one, this is exactly the path that First Contact takes. Which is why, I mean, I think this movie aged incredibly well as well. It's a great story. It's great story action with captivating villains encompassed by well-paced out structure. And you really can't ask for anything more when it comes to a uh, actiony sci-fi movie. This is not like Justin Lin's Star Trek Beyond or any of the other J.J. Abrams movie. Don't get me wrong. Story comes first. Characters come first. Theme comes first. And then there's action and suspense and all this other CGI just peppered throughout nicely. And again, it just makes for uh, for an all-around well-structured film. So I definitely think that Star Trek First Contact released November of 1996 aged incredibly well. And do check it out on Netflix. It's currently there. You can stream it in HD and uh, do let us know what you think. It'd be very interesting to hear what uh, some of you uh, think about this one, especially I would, I do want to know how, uh, where this ranks, Justin, where, where does this rank? Is this your top three, top two? I, I would have to say this is probably number two for me behind Rathacon. I know we were talking about this last night. And I don't remember if you already mentioned this, but what also made Star Trek Rathacon good is that it also followed after one of the original episodes. This is what made Star Trek movies tied to a TV show so great is we already had an inherent bad guy that we could draw off of. So Khan, the Borg, you had an established villain that is really fun to play with and already invokes fear in the audience, which makes, I think, Rathacon and First Contact some of the best Star Trek movies ever made. Did it age well, Star Trek First Contact? A resounding yes. All right, so that was, of course, Tim and our special guest talking about Star Trek First Contact and whether or not it aged well. And so I will say that next week, due to time constraints, there will not be a bonus segment. And so without further ado, I think it's time for the movies. Is it not there, Tim? Movie it up. 
All right, folks, here we go. It's the movie. <laughs> This week's movies are, of course, Star Trek Beyond and the ultimate edition of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, which added 30 minutes of footage, actually kind of changed the entire movie, the tone of the movie, and even the rating of the movie, moving it from PG-13 to rated R. Incidentally, there was no additional smoking. I just, you know. Um, But uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about Star Trek Beyond first. And again, it's going to be Tim and the secret special guest. Well, Justin, special his name is Justin. We, we it's can, Justin I mean, now. We already know. We, it's we already, already been established. Yeah, it's, it's established now that it's Justin, but I'm just trying to keep up with the theme here. So I'm going to back off and let Tim and Justin do their thing, and then we'll come back for Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition. All righty, and first up... Justin is joining me again in discussing Star Trek Beyond, the brand new Star Trek film directed by Fast and Furious's Justin Lin, produced by J.J. Abrams, Robert Orsi, and a number of other people. This one is written by Simon Pegg and Doug Jung. Um, This is a continuation of the J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek series. It is the 13th Star Trek film in the overall franchise, uh, but the third installment in the reboot series. And Star Trek Beyond, um, I don't want to get into spoiler territory right now, so I'm going to try to give you a super brief, spoiler-free synopsis. The Enterprise is three to three and a half years into their five-year-long intergalactic uh, mission, interplanetary mission, or whatever it's called, and they're due to rendezvous in this huge uh, um, city-like floating space station called Yorktown. And so they go into Yorktown, and as they're there, and and while they're there, an alien uh, in, in a ship approaches Yorktown and it turns it comes to find out that the alien is seeking is trying uh that the alien is seeking help from a federation ship or somebody from the federation um to help her get her uh to to help her reclaim her ship her 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 fleet's ship or something like that that crashed into a planet and that planet just so happens is located in a, uh, in a in a non communication area where to where if you fly there you cannot reach the Federation there is no communication there, so the nebulous of uncertainty the nebulous of uncertainty exactly, so for some in thinking about this now I think it's pretty uh, kind of dumb so of course you hear all this and the Federation goes yes it is it is our duty to send somebody there we're going to send Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. But we're not going to send them any backup or take any precaution to where if we don't hear from them within a certain period of time, you know, we're we're just not going to go search for them. We're not going to send out a search party. So no kind of restrictions or no kind of plan was set into motion other than that the Enterprise would be the ship that is sent out to aid this alien and her crew. 
And of course, they go out, they uh, approach the planet, and suddenly they are attacked by general. I don't know. If, I can't remember if he's a general or commander, but a crawl, the evil alien portrayed by Idris Elba, and basically he destroys their ship, sending the Enterprise crew into space pods in which they land on that planet and they're split up and they're having to find each other and uh, figure out exactly what all is uh, going on. I think that's the basic gist of the movie. Again, I was trying not to spoil anything about this film uh, in case you haven't seen it yet, but we will get into spoilers very soon. Justin, what did you think your initial impressions of Star Trek Beyond? Well, Lynn set out to create the movie he wanted, and he succeeded in the fact that he made The Fast and the Furious 8 in space. That's essentially my takeaway from the new Star Trek movie. It has very little to do with Star Trek, all to do with action, fast-paced camera angles, very action-driven plot and storyline. I think when you dig into this movie... It's very surface level. Yeah, and, and like I mentioned, yeah, Justin Lin did direct Fast and the Furious 3, 4, 5, and 6, or 3, 5, and I don't know, he like three or four of them he directed. And so this is his second franchise, you know, uh, uh, you know franchise film, I guess, or, or franchise that he is directing, that he is helming. And it definitely does feel very action-oriented and kind of like what we were talking about with First Contact and the Next Generation and original, uh, uh, you know, film series, is that this one, uh, just basically what the original, uh, what what J.J. Abrams lacked, Justin Lin got right, and that that was the characters and the camaraderie and the nuanced character moments was very nice, but what Justin Lin was acting... Uh, but what Justin Lin was lacking is what J.J. Abrams excels in, and that is uh, and that is telling a overall story in a in a in a good way and incorporating themes and incorporating nuanced moments. And and again, Justin Lin did all that to a point to to a certain extent, but not in the way that I really wanted to see. In fact. By the time this movie was over, I wanted it to be over. The ending, there's just kind of like this long, drawn-out action sequence where it's beautiful special effects. Yes, it has a great look to it, but it's unnecessary. You know, you don't need all the action. The action should take a backseat to the character, to the story, and to the overall themes. Uh, Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I would feel that there are nice scenes and there are nice moments but that doesn't equate to a good movie. And I guess what I would say is I wasn't disappointed with this as an action movie or a sci-fi movie. I was disappointed in this as a Star Trek movie. You know, we've talked before about how different directors and different movies have a certain feel to them. Star Wars had a very unique feel. Wes Anderson has a very unique feel. Hitchcock, Spielberg, Coppola have a very unique feel that if I didn't tell you one of these directors or genres was happening, you would instantly know. If I put on a Hitchcock movie, you would say, wow, this feels like a Hitchcock movie. Where this movie 
didn't feel like a Star Trek movie to me. It felt like a typical sci-fi movie. And that's where my disappointment, I think, stemmed first off in this movie. Yeah, it's definitely not your typical Star Trek movie. Yeah, it's. I, I think from here on out, we should do. We should warn people about spoilers. This is your official public service announcement. Spoilers are ahead. Spoilers are ahead. However, if you haven't seen the movie, I will say that personally, I recommend it. If you're a fan of the original show, the characters are more prominent. Their interactions are more prominent. It's not all about... Oh, actually, before we get to spoilers, um, what pissed me off about the J.J. Abrams movies is that they um, rely so much on Spock and Uhura's emotional relationship you know, and that's kind of a plot device that was annoying. And also, Kirk trying to find himself as a plot device I found very annoying. This movie was fun because it takes place in a far-off galaxy, in uncharted uh, a piece of space, in an in un- in uncharted planet. And you just kind of got the feeling that they were just away from Earth, where a potential threat was imminent. And that kind of added to the tension and the fun of the movie. It was like the TV show. The best episodes are when they're far, far away from Earth, doing their own thing, on their mission, and uh, just getting into trouble. That's what But you could make the argument that they simply replaced Earth with Yorktown and proceeded with a very basic plot. And you're absolutely right. But the good thing is that that didn't come into play until... The, the the tail end of the movie, and that's where I got annoyed uh, with that is is at the tail end of the movie, and also another big thing that detracted some points is that they keep harking back like Star Trek the reboot in Into Darkness they keep harking back to the original crew, yes Leonard Nimoy passed away, but Spock has a huge presence in Beyond especially with. Uh, with uh, Zachary Quinto's Spock. Spock Prime in this movie, of course, is dead. And that's going to, uh, you know, that's going to have, the, uh, 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 you know, uh, you know uh, um, create some kind of feeling with Spock. And it's not just like a moment and you move on. No, they take, it's, it's such a big part of this movie that it's frustrating. Even at the tail end of the movie, they hark back to the whole crew. Uh, you do see the original crew in some form or fashion. I mean, yes, um, old Captain Kirk doesn't appear in person, but you see, it's in the form of like a picture. You see a group of uh, the, uh, the original group together uh, from, I think, the Undiscovered Country film. You see that crew together. And it annoys me because it's obviously different actors, different people portraying them, and they just really need to stop making those specific parallels to the original people and just move on and quit. Just They, they just need to quit harking back to the old stuff. And to me, that's what really, really detracted from this movie. All the Spock stuff, all the looking, you know, all the looking back fanfare that only fans would really enjoy. But I'm, I consider myself a fan, and I just really didn't quite enjoy it too much. I just want to see something new and fresh. Star Trek from here on out just needs to be its own flavor. 
Well, and those harking backs really had a ha moment, not a oh wow kind of moment. So they didn't come across as nostalgic as I think they thought they would in the green room. Right. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that for sure. All right. So, so oh, go ahead. What I, what I, so spoilers ahead, I think is what you were going to say. Spoilers are ahead. So what I think really frustrated me with this movie is I was finally excited to see a mature Kirk, a mature Enterprise crew, and a mature Enterprise setting out on one of these awesome space missions. Like you said, we're three, three and a half years into his, into his five-year mission, and you really feel like, okay, this is where the show was, this is where the original series really took place, was right in this time period, we should have a mature Kirk. And what I felt like we got was a very immature Kirk. I felt like everything was still him being a high schooler who had to prove why he was right all the time. And that really took away from the movie to me because we had the first two movies to do that. And yes, Kirk will always be spunky and spontaneous, and that's why we loved him. But he was still a captain first and foremost. And in this movie, I don't get that sense of stoic awesomeness that you would have gotten with the original Kirk. So like you said, you were really excited that we're getting away from Earth. We're finally um, on the awesome Enterprise. And so what do they do? And I literally looked at my watch to see how far into the movie it took for them to destroy the Enterprise. Why do they feel the need to destroy the Enterprise or make it crash in every single movie? I don't understand this need for destruction of the Enterprise. Yeah, I mean... And it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like my my deal with heavy heavy action, uh, you know, oriented movies, is that you really want the action in specific characters to whenever they die, or something large happens in a big happens in an action scene, you want it to have the desired effect and impact on the audience, and if you, um, and if you keep, uh exploiting that repeatedly it loses that desired effect and a lot of us look at it star trek fans look at the enterprise as a character not a location but a character um because it's what houses the crew you know it is the character that protects the crew it is the character that fights for the crew it fights the other uh, the other ships so if you keep killing it off and you keep destroying it well, you know, you always know there's going to be a new Enterprise. And, of course, whenever they reveal the new Enterprise, they do this, like, reveal montage, you know, that just really doesn't have, you know, it, you know, it, the, the, you know, an, an effect on, on me, especially. And that's a good thing about First Contact, is that the Enterprise didn't blow up. Yeah, and that was really disappointing to me because I thought... What would have driven this movie to new territories would have been to see a mature Enterprise crew 
working together to solve this problem. Instead, we have the same divided crew all trying to figure out what they need to do in their own separate circumstances. And that no longer felt like a good Star Trek movie to me. Right, yeah. And so now that we're in plot spoilers, I guess... So when when the Enterprise crash lands and the crew is, you know, everybody breaks up and they're on their own, um, Simon Pegg meets this alien woman who has been on the planet for ever. And it turns out her home, where she lives, is actually an old Federation starship called the USS Franklin that crash landed some time ago. And major spoiler, major spoiler, you find out that Crawl was actually the commander of the USS Franklin. And over the years, he just became bitter and frustrated and, you know, it just has so much resentment toward the Federation. So when, uh, so as the story progresses, you find out that, well, you know, the, the, uh, the Enterprise crew, Captain Kirk and Scotty and all them, they need to get this ship up and running so they can warn Starfleet that the... Uh, that Kroll and his gang are going to blow up Yorktown. So for many, 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 many years, Kroll and his gang have yet, have not been able to get the USS Franklin to to work, pretty much. Instead, they just decided to be pissed off at the Federation for not saving them instead of actually trying to do something about it. But in one afternoon, Scotty pretty much single-handedly is able to get the ship to work and that just kind of blew my mind and it's not like they're trying to get from one part of the planet to the other with the starship with the uss franklin no they actually blast off they go through a crater not crater field but like an asteroid field and they warp i think they warp to fucking yorktown where they proceed to battle Crawl and his enemy ships in Yorktown. So I, I really don't understand how Crawl and his team, which I'm pretty sure they had a science officer, I'm sure they had an engineer, that just never was explained to me. And I kind of really needed to, to you know, ha- have some kind of story element in place so that I could believe that Scotty, which we all know Scotty's a genius and whatever, but there needs to be a level of realism when it comes to something this detrimental and this big as a game changer. Especially in a Star Trek movie. Like you said, it's not like his car ran out of gas and he pushed into a gas station. His car runs out of gas and he races in the Grand Prix, essentially. That's what it felt like they did with the USS Franklin. They take a ship that hasn't been able to fly in years and years and years, and they enter it into a very convincing space battle that really leaves you dumbfounded that this ship can do any of that. Yeah, and on top of that, Captain Kirk comes across a a fucking dirt bike (laughs) in the bridge of the USS Franklin. So, And then you're telling me that neither Kral or any of his crew inspected the Franklin for resources and didn't want to take the dirt bike to maybe inspect the planet at a faster pace because it looked like Kirk was able to 
actively get around with ease on the dirt bike, so it's not like they couldn't use the bike to get around the planet. So the movie doesn't have, like, silly data moments in it. Like, the characters aren't dumb. It's just there's plenty of plot that just really doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, every like certain things are just a little too convenient and put there specifically to further the plot. I would fully agree with that. There's so many moments... Especially, I think, if you go back and watch this movie that you go, but wait, but how? Um, Kind of moments that make you really lose focus on the main plot. But again, there's those gorgeous graphics to take all of that away, right? Yeah, I saw this movie in IMAX 3D and... I thought it looked pretty. The colors were pretty. Um, the movie had a solid look to it. In fact, I like the crawl Enterprise invasion quite a bit. Uh, it was really neat and pretty, you know, like it, 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 you know, it made me worry for the Enterprise crew, you know, what they had to go through. And there are, there are specific moments and scenes, action scenes and chase scenes that are so well done. Like whenever uh, Kirk and Scotty, uh, is it Scotty or Kirk? No, Kirk and Chekhov go back to the Enterprise after it crash lands. And there's this like chase scene with Kral's enemies in tow as the Enterprise is kind of sliding down this cliff. And so there, you, you can tell that they built all these sets that can tumble around and move around with actors in them. And it wasn't just like one little measly hallway. No, it's just many hallways and many corridor, corridors that they had to be able to tilt around and move around and and whatnot with actors in it. So it, they had a lot of practical sets and a lot of great stunt work, but it's just like the last 25 minutes of the movie or the last 20, yeah, 20, 25 minutes of the movie. It was just insane special effects in a, in a really goofy, you know, floating fight scene up in, uh, in the, in the heights of Yorktown. And, you know, the movie, when the movie, after the bad guy battle, it just left me feeling like, oh, okay. Like, there was no feeling of, like, yes, they accomplished something. Yes, that stood for something. It just kind of ended. So let me take a minute and just run through some of my main issues with this movie. Go for it. First off, they're three, three and a half years out into deep space. And yet, the most sophisticated space station is out there. Doesn't really make sense to me why they're charting an area where they have a deep space space station. So that's number one. Number two, they never give you a concrete reason why the USS Franklin is out there. They give you a really wishy-washy explanation, but that really didn't do it for me. Number three... Whenever they have a grand thing like Yorktown, they feel this need to give you this montage throughout the whole thing, showing you the civilization and what it's been and created. And you just don't need that. That's really, to me, showing how dumb the audience is when they need to do that. They never needed to do that with the Death Star. Once you saw it on screen, you knew what it was. But again, that's a really ticky-tacky kind of, it bothers me. Moving on, again, the plot holes that just go through where you say, but why wouldn't 
the original crew have done this? Or why can't they do this? Or how is that flying so well all of a sudden really got to me? And finally, and I think we talked about this last night, I didn't really understand how the Beastie Boys not only saved the day, but blew up the enemy ships. I get that they don't like noise, but how did it start blowing them up just by being in contact with them? I just like the the two music choices, Beastie Boys and that the whatever hip hop song that they used from like the late 80s, early 90s. And, and I guess those are the only two songs that made it. And don't get me wrong, I love those songs. I think they're great songs. But, you know, Quentin Tarantino has a great quote about music and movies. And he said, music should amplify a scene, not make a scene. And I feel like with the Beastie Boys song in the movie, if it's not for that song, that scene doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't, it doesn't amplify the scene. It makes the scene. And... That, to me, is bad filmmaking. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And again, I think it's because of, you know, Justin Lin directing and who knows, who, you know, who he brought over from the Fast and Furious universe to help make the movie. But, you know, and, like, that's what got me when I went back and rewatched the special features of the 2009 reboot. Abrams and Orsi and all the other guys, they their goal is to set out and make a Star Trek movie that is... Uh, that that other people can enjoy it. Uh, they wanted to take a Star Trek movie and give it the pace of Star Wars, the rock and roll pace of Star Wars. This movie just kind of ex- expands more on it, though it still kind of stays true to the characters. I just wish they just can make a lower-budget Star Trek movie for the fans, just at least one with this crew, with these characters, with these actors, because I don't, I mean, I just hate the mentality of trying, you know, each movie has to top the other. That doesn't have to be the case. Each movie does not have to top the other. And that's why I still kind of like this one. It was because it didn't feel like it was trying to top anything else. It was still its own movie. Just unfortunately, it had a little bit too much action for my taste, and it did hark back a little too much to the original films. So out of five, Justin, what would you rate? I'm going to give Star Trek Beyond a 2.25. A 2.25, and I am going to land on 3.75 out of five. I do recommend it. I did enjoy it. It's just... I don't know, it'll be interesting to see in 20 years how well this movie aged because it can go either way depending on the other Star Trek movies that comes out that come that that will eventually come out after this one. Uh so yeah, do you have any final thoughts you would like to leave with Star Trek Beyond? Well, I will say again, this movie doesn't disappoint as an action sci-fi movie. It disappoints as a Star Trek movie. Which, when we went back and watched First Contact, really made apparent to me about how well done a movie from 20 years ago embodied Star Trek, but a movie this year couldn't embody as well. So I wouldn't tell fans not to see it. 
I just wouldn't tell them to get their hopes up too high. And there you have it, 2.25 for Justin and 3.75 for me, Tim. And thanks for coming out, man. It was fun doing this with you. All right. And that was the wonderful Star Trek Beyond. Or was it? Or was it? I don't know because I haven't seen it. All right. So here we go with Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition. This uh, is the... I'm not going to rehash the plot. Basically, it's the Zack Snyder flick, right? Ben Affleck, Henry Cavill, Amy Adams, blah, blah, blah. So it's we're not rehashing the plot here. We're not doing anything else. It's just that this particular uh, version of the film added literally 30 more minutes into the movie, completely readjusted the tone, brought huge amounts of violence back into the uh, into the fray of the film, and really showed some new character directions, explained a lot of things that were nitpickier, and even, I I don't want to say that they mellowed out Lex, per se, but they did make him more bearable. I personally did not enjoy him. Still, overall, I, I hate what they did to him. But it did at least kind of mellow him out a little bit. Um... But I really liked the additions to the film. Uh, for instance, you kind of like er, very early on in the movie, you see Ben Affleck, and he finds this girl, and he's like, "Where's your mommy?" And she points at the thing, and you just kind of left to wonder, "Well, I guess this kid just randomly wandering around in the street." Nope, they and it's little things like they explain that she was pro- uh, part of a little daycare group that, for whatever reason. Uh, either wasn't in the building or was in a different part of the building when Superman flew through it. Superman was, you know, was busted through it, whatever, with Zod. So it's little things like that, things that took like 10, 10, 12 seconds um, that really added great expositional details so that you're not left wondering why is this happening and why should I care? A lot of that stuff was done. There's also a lot more like when Batman rescues uh, Martha Kent that uh, they added easily to about two and a half minutes of fighting there. Uh, And I mean, it was just seriously like, good God, Ben Affleck was, you know, Ben Affleck's stuntman was amazing. (laughs) But no, I mean, seriously, uh, they just really fleshed out these scenes and made them make a lot more sense and added a whole lot more umph to the movie than the original PG-13 version would have uh, or could have ever done. And it made the movie make more sense. And that is so, so difficult to do. Um, I just... Uh, it would have been, I mean, without this additional footage, they're just virtually, they did the best with what they could. Um, I don't necessarily think it completely vindicates Zack Snyder, but I would say that it helps him plead his case a lot more. Um, the characterizations are better. I just like the expositional details. I like the arcs that you get to see that are fleshed out more. Um, and I like the grit. I, I truly like the grit. It really makes for the telling of a darker version of what the world would think of Superman and uh, bringing real grit and style to the 
to the why of Ben Affleck's Batman, not just the how. So, um, I move my 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 initial rating for Batman v Superman with all of its flaws uh, was th- was three. And again, it doesn't correct all the flaws. There still are character issues. There still, I, again, as much as it kind of gives a little bit better perspective of Lex Luthor, the, the entire characterization is still fundamentally flawed and irritating to watch. So, I mean, there are still things that are going to um, be present from the original showing. But all of the things that were added for me moved the original rating from a three on that PG 13 version with the ultimate edition getting a 3.75 out of five. Um, it really made me enjoy the movie and look at it in a different light. And I'm glad that this version exists. So I would say for whatever reason, if you still have not seen Batman V Superman, just skip it, jump to the ultimate edition and go. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. I originally gave Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, a two and a half. Oh, no, I didn't give it two and a half. I gave it two. The extended version is your go-to version. It is significantly better, but the stuff that really pissed... Like, I, it, it took me a while to get through the first 35 minutes of this movie. Just the gratuitous violence of the whole desert scene with Lois Lane and Superman and just that whole thing... Just gratuitous violence that that is it, it belongs in a completely different movie. Now, once the story gets going, I liked being able to see and hear more of Clark Kent. I understood his motivations a lot more, and in fact, I actually felt more for him by the end of the film. So, all in all, I liked it significantly. Um, uh, uh, I thought it was significantly better with it being three hours long. It's just the the problems with the movie, there's still a lot of them. Uh, Lex Luthor, though I kind of felt more for Lex Luthor this go-around, I thought he was more menacing and, and you know, more, more of a, a little bit better of a bad guy, but he's still a bad, bad guy. I don't like the way he um, portrayed the character whatsoever, especially with the whole daddy issue, you know, thing that he has. Lex Luthor isn't, he doesn't have daddy issues. He's corporate greed guy. You know, he wants to have the power and he wants to destroy Superman because Superman is more powerful than him. And then on top of that, you have, I I remember Matt in, in the original uh, uh, review, you said you didn't like the music cues. Well, this one has even more music cues. I hate every single fucking Amazonian Wonder Woman music cue whenever you find out who Wonder Woman is you hear the Wonder Woman music and I'm just not looking forward to the future movies because I mean I'm hoping Justice League it it works on this stuff more but I'm just worried. I'm worried. Though ba- though the ultimate edition is a step up, actually it's a couple steps up. It's still not great, and I really want this to be great, because what what it does better than Marvel, I really, really like. I'm tired of Marvel movies, and I want more DC movies. I want more good DC movies, and I, I really am looking forward to seeing Suicide Squad, and I'm really hoping Suicide Squad nails it, um, nails it right on the head. 
with its tone, with its style, with its uh, like like with with nuance, with story nuance, because the ultimate edition does have more of that, which I appreciated. So I gave two stars to the the original version. I'm giving this one a three point. Um, I, I'm giving it a 3.25. Super close to a 3.5, but I'm just going to stick with a 3.25. Just a little bit better than good. So who knows? Maybe repeat viewings, I'll, you know, think it better. Who knows? Hey, we, we literally, I mean, I think this I think this Ultimate Edition did its job because we went from a 2.5 on the whole to a 3.5 on the whole. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's... I think that's good. Maybe they'll actually just go ahead and do it right the first time <laughs> next time. <laughs> and with our and with the uh and with our new president of DC, maybe we won't have to worry about whether or not it'll get done right the first time. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. All right. And um I guess so without further ado, we'll talk about the movies for next week. We are going to be covering the Jason Bourne series, all of it. Uh, Born Identity, Supremacy, Ultimatum, The Legacy, and of course, Jason Bourne that's in the theater now. Uh, we're gonna cover that whole series, get it all knocked out, and that is going to be the flicks for next week, since we've only done one movie for the past couple of weeks. Why not do five next week, right? Um, really bring it back with a bang. Uh, and that, I believe, is that and comes to the spiel. Takes brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we're, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Ben Affleck, I get to say this. You're basically the sum of all the experiences you've ever had, and they're sort of shaken up in you and reproduced in the things you create, and that includes seeing movies. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>